Good morning. Good morning. From John Gano to Harry Fujiwara, from 1890 in this location to 2023 in this location, one thing remains unchanged. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified as a substitute for sinners continues to be preached, and for that I am grateful to be able to be here and be a part of that legacy today. It is a privilege uh, to be here and to be with your church this morning. It's a privilege to call your pastor uh, a friend. We have prayed for you many times in our congregation. Uh, Our church knows of this church, and they love to pray for this church because we're grateful that you're ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city. And we're grateful that you're holding out an outpost for the gospel here in this city. And it is our prayer that the Lord would continue to bless your efforts and that he would give you endurance. And I just want to exhort you, even as we begin today, for you to consider it a great privilege to be a member here if you are a member of this local church. It is a wonderful privilege to have a gospel-preaching church in this community, in this city, and never take that for granted. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to First Peter as you're turning there. I'm just going to say uh, that I bring greetings from Christ Church Westchester. That is true. It's been confused before. Some people think I'm from New York, but I'm not. We are west of Philadelphia, uh, but I did not grow up in that area. I grew up in L.A., lower Alabama, the, the, the deep south, the real L.A., uh, I was, grew up in the deep south and have continued to migrate north, so I guess Canada is next for us. Uh, but it is a privilege to be here to, to open God's Word with you. Our attention will be directed to First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 22 in a moment. But if you're not very familiar with First Peter, let me just give you a little bit of context to help you. Peter is writing to some churches that are spread out through what we might call modern-day Turkey. Uh, churches in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all Pontus, Galatia, all of these areas. And he's writing to these persecuted Christians to encourage them. Now, when we think of persecuted Christians, we often almost only think of physical persecution in relationship to the church. But at this time, that's really debated in the New Testament. It seems the type of persecution that these believers are experiencing is not dissimilar to the type of persecution that you would experience here as members of this church and residents in this city as Christians professing to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're being alienated because of their belief in Jesus Christ. People think of them as bigoted their faith in Jesus Christ. People think of them as strange and weird because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's difficult for them to, to live in the world. And if you read through First Peter closely, you'll see all of these references to the way that people are speaking about them and treating them. And Peter is now writing to encourage them. But as he encourages them, the first thing that he does in the opening chapter of this famous book for us is that he speaks about the beauty of the gospel and how God has saved them and changed them. And then he shifts his focus. Not simply from what God is doing for them individually, but to what God is doing among them corporately. And he now gives us these different metaphors for a church. We'll read the whole section, but we'll focus on verses 22 in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. But he first speaks about the church as a family. And then you'll notice that he speaks about the church as, as a temple, a spiritual house. And then finally, he speaks about the church as a unique race or people to encourage them, to help them see That what God is doing in them individually was never for them individually. God has saved them to be a part of his people so that together they might live distinctly in the world. Peter writes, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself for here speaking to us today. Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, living stone rejected by men, in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, We give you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to focus as our pastor and friend and brother Harry prayed a moment ago. Do not let the enemy snatch the good word that we are giving our attention to now. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. I want you to suppose that a special microphone were wired to pick up the sentences that were playing just at or below the awareness level of all of our mental tapes as we entered through the various doors of the church this morning. If we were eavesdropping on the mental tape playing in your brain, I wonder what type of things we would have heard. Oh no, there's Harry. If he sees me, he'll ask why I haven't replied to any of his emails. I need to hurry up and get a seat. I wish my spouse weren't away this morning. I really don't like coming to church alone. Well, I'll sit at the back and leave as soon as the service is over. I sure hope the preaching's better this week than it's been the past few weeks. 
This should be a really great day. No work needs to be done. I like our church. The Giants play at 1 p.m. That gives me time to go to church and be there for kickoff. I really like being a Christian. I wonder if I should keep coming to this church. I really haven't made a lot of friends. Well, I'll keep praying about it. We'll see how today goes. Look at that happy young family. It really hurts when I think that I don't have kids or my kids are grown up and mixed up. I wish I could have some of that. Come on, don't cry. Here comes one of the elders. If this church knew what I did last night or last week, they wouldn't be altogether glad to receive me this morning. Friends, with tapes like these playing just at our awareness level as we quietly enter into the building, the chances are very slim that any real love will be demonstrated during our time together because we are so much more focused on ourselves than everyone else around us. As Peter shifts from a focus on the individual and what God has done in the life of a believer to bring them out of darkness into light, he now focuses on the community. And we see that that was just as true in the first century as it is today as he urges these persecuted Christians to love one another. First Peter is so hopeful of a message because the gospel, which has the power to save us, is, the apostle tells us, actually the ground of our mutual love. Peter tells us that because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. And he does it by giving us three reasons and three ways to love one another. It's a very simple outline. Reason one, two, and three. Way one, two, and three. Reason number one. Look with me again in verse 22 of chapter one. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. They've purified their souls by obeying the truth. Therefore, verse 22, they are to love one another. Peter actually grounds this command to love one another on their conversion. Having purified your souls, and how did they do that? Verse 22, by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. If you go home this afternoon and you start to read through the New Testament epistles, that's the letters in the New Testament after the book of Acts, one of the things that we're going to see if we read closely is that the gospel is often referred to as the truth. Galatians chapter 2 verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Or Galatians chapter 2 verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Peter actually tells us that this past action of conversion to the truth of the gospel as ongoing consequences for them in the present, even though... They're being slandered and misrepresented and mistreated and oppressed and ostracized and alienated. The difficulties that they face as believers, the sins that others have committed against them because they're Christians, the hardships that they are experiencing because of their faith in Christ, the pain that they feel as believers does not exempt them from loving one another, from doing spiritual good to others in the Christian community any more 
then it exempts you or me. But friend, isn't that often how we feel and how we respond when others have wronged us? As if we are somehow justified and no longer showing love to other people because we personally have experienced pain. And that response often seems justified to us, doesn't it? You see, Peter knows that our default tendency is to turn inward rather than to turn outward towards others in love, especially when we're hurting, particularly when we're suffering. So he summons a suffering church to mainstream Christian life by calling them to love one another. And in so doing, he actually reveals to them the goal of their conversion It's not simply that they might be right with God so that they personally can experience joy and they individually can go to heaven, but that a genuine love for others might be manifested among them and a distinct community might be created. This is how they will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. But it's not a love for others in general. It's a love for other believers in particular. Members of these churches to which he is writing. Which is why he says, verse 22, brotherly love or Philadelphian. I'm from the Philadelphia area. And sometimes in some places, if you go into downtown center city Philadelphia, the city looks like anything except the city of brotherly love. And sometimes, among some Christians... In some churches, the church looks like anything except a community characterized by love. You see, Peter knew firsthand that ugliness can occur among and by true believers. And when he looked into the lives of these Christians in these churches, it grieved him to see it. He saw when he looked into the lives of these Christians in these churches that something was grievously wrong. That something was not right, it should not be the way that it was. And he concluded that the missing element was love. So he commanded them to love one another since because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. Believers, Peter tells us, are not simply to be known for their endurance in exile that they might grin up and bear it while they're experiencing hardship. They're not simply to be known by sound doctrine and confessions of the faith so that they can say all of the right kinds of things. They're not simply to be known by passionate worship and unwavering love. They are to be known by an unwavering love for one another, even while they suffer. Reason number one. Reason number two. Look at verse 23. Love one another since you have been born again Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. They are to love one another, Peter tells us, because, verse 23, they have been born again. In verse 22, conversion is described as them purifying their lives by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. But now in verse 23, conversion is described as God causing them to be born again. In verse 22, the command to love was grounded upon their obedience to the gospel. But now in verse 23, the command to love is grounded upon God's saving action. God has caused them to be born again. God has granted them new life. God has given them ears to hear. God has given them eyes to see. God has made the dead heart live. 
God has caused them to be born again, so they are to throw off old life patterns, and they are to put on new life patterns. Peter's reason is very simple in verse 23. They are to want, love one another because God has loved them. They are to love one another because God has done the good work of redeeming grace in their lives. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. The apostle John would say something very similar when he's writing to churches. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now drop to verse 19 of the same chapter. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Fellow members of this church, do you love one another? I'm not asking you if you've learned how to tolerate each other's face on Sunday mornings. I'm asking you if you love one another. Do you love one another enough to pray for one another? Do you love one another enough to serve one another when you feel like you have nothing else to give? Do you love one another enough to disagree with one another and stay in good standing with one another? Do you love one another enough to forbear with one another and be patient with one another and perhaps consider, beloved, that as you feel that you are bearing a lot of patience with other people, that perhaps other people in the congregation feel the exact same about you? Do you love one another enough to give up your rights for one another? Do you love one another enough to be inconvenienced by one another? Friends, do you love one another enough to forgive one another so that you can continue to approach the Lord's table with one another? Or have you allowed petty things to divide you and separate you from Christian community and fellowship? Peter is not commanding these believers to learn how to coexist with one another. Peter's not saying... Learn how to put up with one another. Peter's not saying, learn how to endure other difficult Christians. That is the love of the world. Peter is calling them to something far more complicated. He's telling them to love one another. He's commanding them, us, fellow members of the church, to love one another. And love, brothers and sisters, makes us vulnerable. It is hard to love other people Because it actually opens us up to pain. And the only way to protect ourselves from that type of pain is not to love at all. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. 
If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your love to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with all of your hobbies and your little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements in the lives of other people. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Friends, perhaps you're here today and you find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another because you know that you've hurt someone so deeply that you cannot even imagine being forgiven by that person to be loved. This apostle, Peter, knew exactly what you felt like to feel unforgivable, to feel unlovable, to feel as if it was impossible to be loved. But this same apostle standing by the Sea of Tiberias many years before, after he had sinned grievously, was forgiven by the very person that he had sinned grievously against, Jesus Christ. And now, this side of the resurrection, writing to these persecuted Christians, forgiven, restored, loved, confidently calls all of these believers to love because this same apostle knows that there is no sin that you or I can commit that would send us outside of the reach of God's love. Friends, it is possible to be forgiven of, restored from, used after, loved after the most heinous, Christ-diminishing, family-destroying, community-disrupting sins. The Apostle Paul, a legalist, a murderer, a blasphemer, said it like this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friends, what prevents you from coming to this Jesus today? Is it pride that people here already think that you're a Christian? Friends, I can assure you that nothing would cause this church to rejoice more than for you to come to Christ today. Is it fear of what you have been doing in your life and to think people will finally know who I am and what I have done and how I have been living? Brothers and sisters, trust me. Friend, if you are here, trust me. Nothing would cause your pastor greater joy than for you to come with those sins and to plead the mercy of Christ and for him to assure you from Scripture that Jesus forgives sinners. Is it that you think that your sin is somehow uniquely sinful and that somehow there are people in this room that do not sin like you and that your sin is so sinful and so unique that God would not want to forgive it? Friends, Jesus is the friend of sinners. He loves to forgive sinful people who confess their need of him. God will forgive sin. Jesus came to forgive sinners. Friend, if you are here and you are hiding that sin, Friend, if you are here and sitting in that pride, friend, if you are here and you are convincing yourself of something false that God would not forgive you, then let me assure you today that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God that this Peter is writing about, would be glad to forgive you if you plead the mercy of his Son by simply turning away from your sins. We call that repentance. 
professing faith in Jesus Christ. We say believe in him. And if you do that, the astonishing mercy of the gospel is that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Friend, if you're here today and you want to know more about that good news, that gospel, I'll be here after the service. Your pastor would love to speak with you. But frankly, all of the members of this church would love to talk to you. Find one of them and ask them to show you from the Bible that is in that pew. How can I know this Jesus? But perhaps you're here today and you find this sermon difficult in a different way. You find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another because you cannot even fathom being loved by someone who has been so unlovely toward you. Friends, Jesus knew exactly what you felt like Scorned by his family, abandoned by his friends, betrayed by his disciple, this disciple, failed by his government, mocked by all of his countrymen, and yet this Jesus, from the instrument of his torture, the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then on the evening of his resurrection, the very first thing that this same Jesus did was come among these disciples who had all abandoned him. And the very first thing he said to them was, peace be with you. Before he sends them out in the world so that they might go baptize and teach, before he commands them to forgive the sins of others, that their sins might be forgiven, the very first thing Jesus does is say a second time, peace be with you. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment what that must have been like for these disciples. They had been trained by Jesus. They had gone to Jesus' school, literally. They had been traveling with him. Jesus had prophesied and told them, all of these things are going to happen. And then on the evening of the resurrection, Jesus does not remind them of what they've done wrong. He doesn't say one thing about how they failed them. He doesn't say, guys, I had been telling you this literally for years. He doesn't make sure that they've dealt with enough pain so that they might be forgiven of their sins. He simply comes without mentioning their sins and forgives them and then empowers them to go forward with the message of forgiveness to the nations. Can you then, Christian brother or sister, fail to forgive someone else and withhold the forgiveness of God from them? Who are you withholding forgiveness from today? Unforgiveness is the acid that will destroy its own container. The scripture tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And new birth, Peter tells us, is the reason believers are to love one another. Because believers have been born again by means of, verse 23, the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God. The invincible, incorruptible seed by which we are born again is the gospel. It's the good news. It's what gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it never loses its relevance. It's imperishable. It's the reason that a church exists here today, hundreds of years after its inception, because the gospel is relevant in every age, no matter how much this city changes or turns away from the Lord. It never loses its relevance. And the living word of God produces life. That is verse 22, abiding. Friends, it will never cease. This city may seem like it's powerful and will never pass away. But Peter directs our eyes to the one thing that will endure forever. The love of God and the love of God among his people. Which is why this is such a great teaching. And it is so hopeful of a message. Because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. In the first century and the 21st century. Reason number one. 
Reason number two. Reason number three. Verse 24. For all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, careful readers and teachers in the room notice that word for at the beginning of verse 24, which typically signifies cause and not reason. And they began to think that the pastor didn't know how to read. But because it is difficult to see how the Old Testament citation from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, grounds what preceded, it makes better sense, in my opinion, to see it as a restatement of the reason to love in verse 23, which I believe makes it another reason. The third reason to love, then, is that the Word of God endures forever. And Peter restates and reinforces that reason with a quotation from Isaiah 40, where comfort is being proclaimed to Israel. If you go back and you start to read Isaiah 40 through the end of the book, you see that there is this comforter proclaiming comfort to Israel because God will once again work among these people who have been exiled from the land because of their sin. They're being ostracized, alienated, persecuted, slandered, misrepresented. And the good news for Israel in Isaiah 40... Verse 9, and the good news for these elect exiles in 1 Peter chapter 1, and the good news for you here today is that according to Peter, God always fulfills his promises. And the nations of the world that seem so strong and are able to resist his will are not strong and unable to resist his will. And his people in exile can hope that God will always keep his promises. Such nations are like grass, the Apostle Peter tells us. They're like the flower of grass, which perish when the winds of the Lord's providence blow upon them. You look out now and everybody knows winter is coming. And all of those beautiful flowers, which are so pretty in the springtime and in the summer, are going to fade away. And in New York, no one will ever know that there was a green thing that existed. By quoting Isaiah 40, Peter is reminding these exiles that the persecutors of their day who seem invincible are not. Their glory is short-lived, but their love for one another is of eternal significance. So he says, verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. Isaiah supports Peter's reason in verse 23 by helping us see that the imperishable, living, and abiding word of the Lord has present relevance and ongoing relevance for how these believers conduct themselves in their exile. And Peter tells us, verse 25, that that relevant word is the good news that was preached to you. Because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. The word of the Lord in Isaiah, which represents the promise that God will restore his people from exile, which represents that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham, which represents that God will bless the nations, is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of God's love, displayed in the person of Jesus Christ, and is now being proclaimed throughout the world in these churches throughout Asia Minor, is now being proclaimed here today. The exodus, the new exodus, the exile, the return from exile, the greater exodus, from return from a greater exile is all fulfilled in the promises of God's love. The command to love one another becomes a reality through the gospel. People who come from different backgrounds and different educational opportunities and from different states and different socioeconomic statuses and different persuasions come together under the banner of the gospel and make up the membership of a church The good news for Zion and the good news for these churches and the good news for you and for me is that God always keeps his promises. 
The command from Peter is now motivated by the gospel. It is the gospel from the abiding word of the Lord that gives them hope of deliverance, and it motivates obedience. So, chapter 2, verse 1, he can say, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. That's not an endorsement of some hypocrisy. And envy, that's not an endorsement of some envy. And all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The gospel from the abiding word of the Lord has caused them to be born again. And that gospel motivates their obedience as the apostle Peter calls them to love. It is the reason he is able to tell them to be different. They're not simply to learn how to tolerate one another. Friends, they're to be an obedient, holy people and live differently in the world. They're to put off old life patterns and put on new life patterns. The gospel of God's love does not let you sit with your sin so that you can be who you are but be forgiven of it. The gospel of God's love forgives you of all of your sins and it demands and expects holiness in your life. The unbelieving world looks into the inside of our churches and they see people who profess repentance and profess God's love and then live like the world. And they say, I get enough of that in the world. You want to see the city changed? Be a people who profess God's love and live differently in light of God's love because of God's love. Distinctly loving one another as brothers and sisters as family in Christ, displaying the beauty of the gospel because the apostle Peter tells us in chapter two, verse three, you have tasted that the Lord is good. You wanna grow up into your salvation? Be a holy people. Because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. Since the gospel's living, abiding word of the Lord motivates their obedience and their love for one another. Friends, we will only love our enemies and love those who are hard to love and unworthy of love when we are motivated by the gospel. Do you find yourself struggling to love other people in the Christian community in this church? Perhaps today, consider the gospel of God's love for you, that he loved you when you were unlovable. He loved you when you were hard to love. He loved you when you were running away from him. He loved you when you were an enemy. He displayed his love for you even though you rejected him time and again. He loved you and brought you into his church and now he has given you his friends as your own so that you might love them as he loves them. The gospel, the good news of God's love, the message of Christ's death, Burial, resurrection, and ascension for sinners saves and motivates our love for one another. Those are the reasons to love, but how are we to do it? Peter knew that we would be a difficult people, so he gives us a little bit of help. He gives us three ways to love one another, and they're all found in verse 22. Way number one, sincere love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love, Love one another. A sincere love is a genuine love. It's an honest love. It's a love that is made evident not only in the public gathering, but in private prayer. It's a love that's evident behind closed doors when others are not around. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is your love genuine? Would the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart manifest a sincere 
genuine, heartfelt love for the brethren of the church, this local church? Or would we find, chapter 2, verse 1, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, misrepresentation, envy behind those closed doors? Friends, love that is only showcased in public is not love. Love that's only showcased when other people are around is not love. Ask any spouse who's only loved in public but behind closed doors is mistreated. Ask any child who's loved in public but hurt behind closed doors. Where is love seen? In public and in private. Why would it be different for the church? Let love, brothers and sisters, among you be genuine. Grow up into your salvation by putting off the community-disrupting sins that not only damage your life, but damage the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let there be a sincere love among you. Way number two, brotherly love. Verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a brotherly love, love one another. Brotherly love is a familial love. And the hardest part of familial love is that it requires you to love. It requires you to gather. It requires you to serve. It requires you to care for others, even when, sometimes especially when, they've wronged us precisely because they're our family. Or as I often say to our church, your crazy Uncle Larry is still invited to the family gathering. A healthy family learns to let love cover a multitude of sins because life together is more important than your individual rights. Friends, that is not the same as allowing someone to abuse you or oppress you or manipulate you or mistreat you. That is always wrong. It is never right. And if that is you here today, I know your pastor well enough to know that he would love to help you find him or find one of the people in this church. They would love to serve you. But believers... Everybody else who isn't in that category. Love learns to cover a multitude of sins so that the unity of the body of Christ might be preserved over and against the individual rights of all of the people because the display of the gospel of this church matters more if you get to serve the way that you would like to serve or do what you would like to do in the way that you would like to do it in the timetable that you think is most appropriate so that you might be esteemed in the way that you think would be most helpful. Friend, do not let your plan to glorify God be confused with God's plan to glorify himself through your life. Brotherly love loves the family over and against the individual. Sincere love, brotherly love, way number three, earnest love. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. The earnest lover loves to outdo the lover by showing greater displays of love. We see this all the time. You see someone who's enamored with somebody else and what do they want to do? They want to show them of their love for them. So they buy something greater and they do something greater and they take them to somewhere greater because they want them to see, I love you. Earnest, fervent love displays that love and affection regardless of how much affection is reciprocated. Brothers and sisters, it is a poor lover indeed who only loves when someone loves them back. Some of you here are tired and weary 
because you're loving other people to try to make them love you. And it doesn't work. You should love to love other people in the body of Christ and love to serve other people in the body of Christ simply because you love Christ and love to love his people. Simply because you want to do spiritual good to other people. And pray that God would allow you to be a recipient of that, but not to coerce them, to make them love you in the way that you think that you should be loved. All of this, the apostle tells us, is to be done from a pure heart. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not for gain, not for attention, not for promotion to become a deacon or an elder, not for an opportunity so that you might be advanced or have a placement among the leadership, but from a pure heart made holy by the gospel, motivated by the gospel of God's love. God's love displayed for all people who come to him. Friends, one thing that keeps us from loving other people is the fear that if somehow we pay this price to love others, we will be the real losers. But the apostle Peter tells us that that is not the case. The power to overcome the fear of missing out and losing is that we are born again through the word of God, a word that will endure forever. Friend, if you're a believer and you've been born again by the love of God, then you can display this love. His spirit resides within you and you can be motivated by this gospel. And friend, if you are not here, but you long to know this love, call out to this Savior today, whether children down here or in the sanctuary or adults who have been coming for many weeks and months or years perhaps. Trust in this Savior and know his love and be motivated by this love. That this Savior loves to love sinners and motivate them to love fellow sinners to the glory of God in Christ. Because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church, even in New York City. Four final applications for us. First, love defines how we act when facing conflict. When there's conflict in the church or among fellow members, this love displays how we are to act in the mix of conflict. Friends, is the love of Christ guiding you through the conflicts you are facing in the church? Second, love does not seek revenge for wrong suffered. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Love does not seek to pay someone back so that then you might decide that they are finally worthy of love again. Love entrusts that to God and loves anyways. Third, love overcomes evil through prayer, forbearance, and kindness. It's down on the front row. There are other kids scattered throughout the sanctuary. I'm assuming I'd see some similar things. One of the things that we try to do in our home is when there's sins or infractions against one another, we try to teach them to love one another by asking each other for, for, for forgiveness. And one of the things that I'm sure happens in your home, as it does in mine, is that the person who has to ask for forgiveness is often not very sincere. They come up and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, you know, but you were being really difficult. But what are we doing in that moment? We're trying to teach them to believe what they don't believe in that moment. That they are to ask for forgiveness and to love even when they do not feel like asking for forgiveness or loving someone else. And the other person must forgive them to teach them to forgive even when they might not feel like forgiving. Brothers and sisters, we learn how to forgive and to be forgiven by forgiving one another. Fourth, Love denies self for the good of others. Are you here and more concerned about your rights than the good of the church? 
love lays all of that aside so that the gospel might be displayed. When you're dealing with hidden hatred or suspicion of other believers, when you're frustrated with how people are responding to world events, when you're hiding sin, love motivates us because of the gospel. There's hope for a loving church. Friends, just think what would happen if 10 believers gathered here today and deliberately chose to play different tapes when they came into this building. And they said something like this to themselves. I know that many people are hurting in the congregation today. Who can I care for and do spiritual good to? Our assembly, this assembly, would be radically different because we would experience the reality of a loving church because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would help us to forgive and to be forgiven. Father, we thank you that this love displays for us not only how we might approach you through Jesus Christ, but this love the Apostle Peter tells us later in chapter 2 sets an example for us in how we are to live this side of eternity with one another as we look forward to the coming age. And Father, we ask that you would so radically change this community by the love displayed among these Christians in this church that are motivated by the gospel, that there would be mass revival in the Upper West End. Father, we pray that literally hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in this city would bow their need to Christ and that they would know the love of God in Christ, that they would live and not die that they would be born again and not perish, that communities would be forever changed, and that the love of God displayed in Christ radically changing this community would be what is known in New York City. That people would look to this city one day and not see money, power, fame, but they would see a community, a city changed by the gospel of Christ crucified. And we ask all of this in the name of of our mighty God. Amen.